0: Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into God's Word. Uh, God, I do, I do thank you for the excitement about this, uh, this new campus, this adoption. And uh, anytime something good happens with your church, your church is your bride, Lord Jesus. That's what you say. We want to be as excited about your bride as you are. And so as we look into your Word now, we've come to hear you speak to us, uh, to direct our lives to give us something that will shape us into the people you want us to be. So Holy Spirit, please be our tutor. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite rock bands growing up was a group called Kansas. Anybody remember Kansas? Oh, you guys are old. (laughs) So Canvas came out with their their first album when I was in in high school, and then subsequently they produced like eight gold albums, three multi-platinum albums, they played to packed out arenas across North America, Europe, Japan. Uh, even if you don't remember Kansas, you, you have, because you're, you're too young to remember Kansas, you have probably heard, if you listen to classic rock radio, you've heard Dust in the Wind, or you, you've heard Carry on My Wayward Son. In fact, I think we got a clip of that. Listen to this. Carry on my wayward son. There'll be peace when you those are great harmonies, okay, it's coming, it's coming, Don't listen, no Woo! Yeah. all right, yeah, a little air guitar, whoa, yeah, yeah, the adults are clapping, the students are going, I can't believe Pastor Jim did that, yeah. All right, so that was actually like the number one hit not too long ago on classic rock radio. So I was excited when I heard, being a, a huge Kansas fan, that they recently came out with a documentary ar- about this band. So I went out, got the DVD, watched every minute of it, was delighted. But here's what struck me as I'm watching. My my heroes, my musical heroes, are now just a bunch of ordinary like 60-something-year-old guys reminiscing about glory days gone by. I mean, ordinary guys. Kerry Livgren, who wrote Carry On, My Wayward Son, and played lead guitar. Uh, you know, he, he looks like somebody's grandpa now. The, the dude's bald. <laughs> Nothing against bald people. <laughs> He's got this droopy mustache. Uh, years back, Kerry actually became a Christ follower. He now teaches Sunday school at a church in Topeka. I mean, just an ordinary guy. Now, I don't know if you've ever gotten to know a celebrity, uh, but over the years of interviewing some celebrities at Christ Community Church, from you know, Hall of Fame quarterback uh, Jim Kelly, uh, Sadie Robertson, Robertson of, of the Duck Dynasty family, Brian Head Welch, heavy metal guitarists, people like What I've discovered is that a lot of famous people beneath the surface are just normal. They're just like you and me. They struggle with the same stuff. They've got relational conflicts in their lives, and they've got personal weaknesses and insecurities and and so on. They're just ordinary people. Now, today we're going to take a look at a guy who's just the opposite of what I've been describing. He was a celebrity. He appeared on the public scene and gained some notoriety almost immediately. But when you got to know the real guy beneath the surface, what you discovered was he's even more spectacular than you could ever have imagined. More spectacular. Now, you you probably have guessed, especially because you're sitting in a church, that I'm talking about Jesus. So, yes, I am. And the text we're going to look at today is Mark chapter 8. So turn in your Bibles to Mark 8. Get out the, uh, the outline in your program. You'll want to fill it out as we go along. We're in the third week of a four-part series, sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. But this is not just a sermon series. It is also a major Christ Community Church initiative to get everybody across all four of our our campuses, across all age groups, reading the Bible on a daily basis. Nationwide survey. Ever heard about this survey? says that the number one contributor to people's spiritual growth is reading the Bible on a regular basis and it doesn't matter if you're here and just exploring a relationship with God or you're a brand new believer or you've been a Christ, uh, Christ follower for years, people who get into the Bible grow. So we have put together a daily Bible reading schedule called the Bible Savvy Journal that will take you through the Bible once every four years. By the way, how many, how many Bible Savvy Journals do you think we've sold so far? We're closing in on 3,000, okay? So this is just really tremendous what God's doing in this regard, getting people into the Bible. It's designed, uh, in addition to get you reading the Bible, it's it's designed to teach you a simple four-step Bible study method that's going to equip you to get something from the Bible every day for yourself. So over the course of this series in the Gospel of Mark, Pastor Clayton and I are, are, are not only teaching passages in Mark, next weekend it'll be Pastor Clayton, teaching passages that you'll be reading later in the week. So today's passage you're going to read on Tuesday. But we're also trying to reinforce this simple four-step Bible study method we call COMA, C-O-M-A. We're going to get to what COMA stands for, just a, a reminder in a moment. But, but let me first say that if you've been learning COMA for the last couple of weeks and trying to apply it as you read the Bible, I want to give you an analogy here that I, I hope will inspire you in your struggle, okay? Because some of you you are discovering, oh, this is not easy, it's a bit awkward initially, How many of you are water skiers? Any water skiers? Okay, see a bunch of hands, maybe at our other campuses as well. Do you remember learning how to water ski? The set of instructions you were given, like five or six things to keep in mind. Okay, first of all, you're in the water. Lean back in a chair position. That's what you were told. Get your ski tips above the water. Make sure the rope is between the ski tips. Let, let, the, let the boat take the slack out. When the slack is taken out, you're supposed to yell, hit it, a little more. Uh, water skiers And I thought out there. Hit it, and then they take off. And when they take off, let the boat pull you out of the water. Remember how many times you were told that? Let the boat pull you out. Arms straight, knees a little bit bent, leaning back. And the most important instruction of all, when you fall, drop the rope. Okay, because if you, don't, if you don't drop the rope, you end up swallowing like half the lake. So now here's the point of the analogy. Those of you who are water skiers, how many of you ever consciously think about those instructions anymore? You don't. You don't. They just come to you automatically now that you've been skiing for a while. Okay, that's how it is with Bible study. I mean, once you've done this C-O-M-A, this coma thing for a while, it comes automatically. So let me remind you of what coma stands for and this is uh, this is right there in your Bible savvy journal. Uh, it's described on a couple of pages. it's printed on the inside back cover. The C of coma stands for context where to go yeah context means if you know the historical, context, the background of any passage you read, you're more likely to understand it. So get yourself an NIV study Bible, and every time the Bible-savvy schedule takes us to a new book of the Bible, read the introduction. One or two pages will, will tell you all about the background to that particular book. And there are footnotes on every page. So additional historical context thoughts throughout the passages. The O of COMA stands for observations. When you read the Bible, you know, you're to be looking for things. And we've tried to help you out by telling you four things to keep in mind, four things to look for, four things to observe. Giving you another acronym, TRTS, look for treats in God's Word. The first T stands for theme. The, the, The R stands for repeating words or ideas. Second, T stands for truths about God, and the, the S stands for something striking, something that jumps off the page at you. So four things to look for as you're reading. Then you take one of those things, this is the letter M, you make it into a message. You ask yourself about one of those observations, well, what is the point God's trying to get across here? I mean, what is the life lesson that God wants to communicate? What is the timeless truth? What is, you know, if I could put it in a sentence, what, what does God want people to do? And then you take it home to a personal A4 application, what am I to do? Okay, specifically, what am I going to do in response, in obedience to what I've just read? So, if your Bible is open to Mark 8... Uh, I'm going to read the first few verses of today's passage to you, and then we're going to make some comments about the context, the C, standing for context, and along the way going to throw out lots and lots of observations about today's passage. So I'm in verse 27 of Mark chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Now, we're going to stop right there in the middle of verse 29. Let me give you some context. Jesus and his disciples are on a walk, going to be a long walk. Uh, They've just been in the village of Bethsaida, if you look at the previous passage, where Jesus healed a blind man. They're headed to Caesarea Philippi, 25 miles north of Bethsaida. So this is going to take them, I mean, there's, there's no bus, there's no train. They're going to walk. It's going to take them a day to two days of walking. They're going to be talking along the way. And Jesus has a particular topic he wants to bring up in the conversation. Jesus wants to talk to these close friends about his true identity. So it's interesting in light of the topic of conversation where they're headed. Jesus has selected the destiny of Caesarea Philippi for a particular reason. It is the hotbed in the ancient world for the worship of pagan gods. In particular, there is a god named Pan who's quite popular in Caesarea Philippi. In fact, the nickname for Caesarea Caesarea Philippi is Paneus. Pan is is a Greek god, half human, half goat. Uh, He is known as the god of nature, the god of shepherds, the god of flocks. He's known as a flute player. He's known as a sex addict. And so, so Caesarea Philippi is all about the worship of pagan gods. If you go there today, I've been there a, a number of times, you, you'll see all these little grottos and caves carved out of the, the, the rock where statues of Pan used to stand. So isn't it interesting, Jesus chooses the hotbed of the worship of pagan gods as the place to make the announcement about who he is. See how historical context, how it matters, it enriches our understanding of the text. So Jesus begins the the discussion with his disciples along the way with a question. You see the question there in the end of verse 27. Who do people say I am? Jesus was forever asking questions. He liked to make people think. Who do people say I am? And the disciples uh, respond by saying, well, there are just several different opinions out there. Uh, some say perhaps you're John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had been Jesus' forerunner, Jesus' PR man, but he was dead. He'd been killed by Herod, King Herod. And if you've been reading through Mark, you know the backstory to this. Uh, Herod had ripped off his brother Philip's wife, and John had a way of getting in King Herod's face about that, bringing up his adultery. Herod, of course, didn't like that, so he ends up killing John. And now the word's out, maybe John has come back to life. Maybe Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected. Even Herod thinks that that may be who Jesus is, and it goons him out. Okay. Other people, according to Jesus' disciples, other people say, maybe you're Elijah. Why Elijah? Well, the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of, of Malachi, 400 years, written 400 years before Christ, says that just before the great day of the Lord, that cataclysmic day when God comes to earth to straighten things out, just before the great day of the Lord, an Elijah-like prophet would arrive on the scene announcing God's coming. So some people are hearing Jesus and they're saying, oh, maybe he, he's that Elijah-like prophet. And, and, and still others were saying, well, he's just, you know, he's just a prophet. He's just a, another prophet arrived on the scene. So Jesus asks his disciples a follow-up question. Look at verse 29. But what about you? Okay, who do you say I am? Now please don't miss what Jesus is doing here because he's still doing it today. Jesus wants to hear from every single one of us what we believe about who he is. You know, are, are we just Are we just going along with the crowd? That's what Jesus wanted to know about his disciples. So are you believing what everybody else believes? Okay, so what does our contemporary culture believe about Jesus today? He's a great man, good moral teacher, founder of one of the world's religions, possibly one of the many ways you could find your your way to God. Okay, Jesus wants to know, so is that what you believe? What's popular out there? Or do you believe more? Do you believe there's more to Jesus than what I've just said? So that's what Jesus wants to know. Do you you believe in the Jesus about to be revealed in Mark chapters 8 and 9, our passage for today? Now, there are three aspects of who Jesus is we're going to take a look at. So here's number one in your outline. Number one, Jesus is the suffering Messiah And just a reminder, as we make observations, that's the O of coma. We're looking for treats, T-R-T-S. The second T stands for truths about God. So this passage is filled with truths about God the Son, about Jesus. In fact, the three points of my outline today are all truths about God the Son, about Jesus. Let me pick it up at verse 29 where we left off. What about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. You are the Messiah. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Peter, by the way, you quickly learn Peter's like Mr. Motormouth, okay? He has a tendency to speak for the rest of the group, but he immediately gives the right answer. You are the Messiah. Some of your Bibles say you are the Christ. Okay, Christ is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word, very same word. So Peter has given the right answer. Why then does Jesus warn Peter in the next verse not to tell anybody? Okay, that ought to be something striking, the S of treats. Oh, Peter's just given the right answer, and Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. Well, Peter had the right title for Jesus, Messiah, but the problem was that the Jews of Jesus' day had a mistaken concept of what the Messiah would do. Let me explain. The word Messiah means literally, it means anointed one. In Old Testament times, when a king took the throne, when he was inaugurated into office, he would be anointed with oil, a little bit of oil poured on the top of his head. And, and so when people, when people read passages, prophecies in the Old Testament about a coming Messiah, they naturally began to associate it with a king who would come. Okay, no doubt he would be a king much greater than their, their most famous king, King David. This would be a king who would deliver them from all their enemies. He would wipe out their enemies. And he would set up an eternal kingdom over which he would rule in righteousness and justice and prosperity forever and ever. So when Peter announced that Jesus was the Messiah, well, he had the right title. But Jesus knew that most people's concept of Messiah was that of a butt-kicking king, a military political deliverer. Wrong idea. Oh, Jesus, Jesus had come to be a deliverer. More about that in just a moment, but not the political military kind. In fact, if the, Romans, if the Romans had gotten wind of the fact that there was a so-called Messiah on the loose, they would have immediately put an end to him and his movement. So Jesus didn't want to be identified as the wrong kind of Messiah, which is why he, he said he didn't want Peter spreading the word around. However, as I said a moment ago, Jesus did come to deliver people. And that's what he goes on to explain to his disciples. This is the kind of Messiah I'm going to be. Pick it up at verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Let me stop there for a moment. We don't have time to go into the Son of Man language, but Son of Man is actually Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses it about himself 14 times in the Gospel of Mark. And scholars say the reason he chooses this title is because in the first century, it was somewhat ambiguous. Nobody was quite sure what the title meant, so Jesus could give it the meaning he wanted to give it, as opposed to using Messiah, a title about which everybody had the wrong idea. You following me? So he uses the title Son of Man, says he must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Okay, Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus explains what kind of Messiah he's going to be. He's he's not going to be a deliverer who inflicts suffering on his enemies. He's going to be a deliverer who endures suffering at the hands of his enemies. Now, there's a word I want you to notice in verse 31. It's the word must. Pops up a couple of times. Okay, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be killed. Jesus tells his followers that it's necessary for him to suffer and die. Necessary. I say necessary, why? Well, Jesus doesn't explain the necessity of his death in this passage, but if you you flip over a couple of chapters in Mark chapter 10 verse 45, very famous verse. In fact, it's our memory, our scripture memory verse for the week. So every other week we provide in the Bible Savvy journal a memory verse. Would encourage you to memorize Mark 1045. In Mark 10, 10 10.45, he says to his followers, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for others. Interesting word, a ransom. In other words, we were in deep weeds. We were in bondage. We were in slavery. We needed someone to buy us out of this slavery. Slavery to what, you say? We were in bondage to sin. Sin's power and sin's penalty. Sin's power because sin makes us do what it wants us to do. So we we envy, we hoard our money and spend it on ourselves, we're full of pride, we blow up in anger, we misuse sex, we ignore God. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Sin makes us do its bidding, it's our master. Sin's power. Jesus comes not only to free us from its power, but also from its penalty. The wages of sin, Romans 6 verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. Okay, you go your way instead of God's way, you disconnect from the giver of life, the result is death. You die spiritually, at the end of this life you'll die physically, you go into eternity where you'll die eternally separated from God, that's death. We're in big trouble. Jesus comes to ransom us from sin's power and sin's penalty. He must. This is why he says he must suffer and die. Now, when Peter hears this, he doesn't like this information. So in verse 32, we read that Peter rebuked Jesus. Uh, The word rebuke here is a it's a really strong word. In fact, if you read through the gospel, accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the word rebuke is often used to describe what Jesus does with demons. When he comes across a demonized people, uh, person, he rebukes the demon. In other words, he tells the demon to shut up and get out. That's what rebuke means. So Peter is saying here, he's saying, zip it, Jesus. No, Peter doesn't want to hear about a cross-bearing Messiah. He wants a butt-kicking Messiah. And so Jesus immediately turns around and he rebukes Peter for rebuking him. And he says, Get behind me, Satan. Now, that ought to be surprising, right? That's another something striking (laughs) when you read Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan, to this guy who just said, You're the Messiah. Yeah, because Peter is acting as an agent of Satan now when he says, You know, no, Lord, you're not going to suffer, you're not going to die. Because Satan's main objection has been to keep Jesus from his mission of going to the cross and ransoming us from our sin. So Peter's doing the very same thing here. So Jesus says, stop it, Peter. See, I must, I must suffer and die. And friends, if Jesus didn't suffer and die, there would be no hope for those of us who need to be ransomed from sin's power and sin's penalty, every one of us. So let's just take the observations we've made and take them home to a message, the M of coma and an A, application. You know, the message is, Jesus is the suffering Messiah who died for our sins. That's the message of the opening section of today's passage. Jesus is the suffering Messiah who died for our sins. Put it on a wall plaque. But now bring it home to an application. Here's the application for those of you who may never yet have surrendered your life to Jesus? Has he become your Messiah? See, he wants to know, who do you say I am? Who do you say? Have you ever said, well, I'll tell you who you are. You're my Savior. You're the one who paid the ransom for my sins. This is your first step in a walk with Christ, is to surrender to him, to acknowledge that what he did on the cross, he did for you. To say, I want to be free from the power of sin in my daily life and the penalty of sin in the world to come. What's the second aspect of Jesus' identity that we find in today's passage? It's that Jesus is the glorious Son of God. That's point number two. Now, I'm going to skip the closing paragraph of Mark 8, Right now, we're going to come back to it a little later, and I want to read to you the opening part of Mark chapter 9. So buckle up, look at verse 2 of Mark 9, let me read. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone, and there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. told you, he's motormouth. okay? Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. He's making a reference here to John the Baptist and Elijah Type figure who would announce Jesus coming. Now, let me walk you through this passage. We're going to make some observations. Okay, this is the O in in, in coma. Uh, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. He's been with them for a week in Caesarea Philippi, and now he takes three of his buddies, Peter, James, and John, and verse 2 says he goes up on a high mountain where they're all alone. Now, one of the things we've already learned in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus liked hanging out at the water. Okay? He liked to be with people at the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which Mark refers to as the lake. But, but, but what we also learn in the Gospels is that when Jesus wanted to get away, when he wanted to be by himself, when he wanted to connect with the Heavenly Father, when he wanted to get his spiritual and emotional batteries recharged, he would go off by himself or with a, a small group of close friends, Peter, James, and John, to the mountains. I, I have a good friend who also lives in the flatlands of Illinois, and he said to me about a year and a half ago, he said, you know, when I need... To, to be refreshed, I like to go to the mountains. i got to get to the mountains at least once a year. And something rang true in what he said. So I went home, got online, made plans for Sue and me to go hiking in the Grand Tetons. This was just last summer. And i got to say, my friend was right. You get into the mountains, there's something about them. So Jesus goes off to the mountains. Now, the high mountain that he visits with his buds was probably Mount Hermon, just a little bit north of where they've been staying in Caesarea Philippi. It's on the border with Syria. It's actually a cluster of three mountain peaks, the highest one over 9,000 feet high. So Jesus and his three amigos are somewhere on the slopes of Mount Hermon when Jesus' appearance suddenly begins to change. Look at verse 2. It says, he was transfigured. The original Greek word here is the word metamorphosis. Sound familiar? That's the word we use to describe the radical transformation of a caterpillar going to become a butterfly. Jesus was metamorphized here. We're talking about a dramatic transformation, but I want you to understand it was a transformation of his appearance, not of his true nature. His true nature didn't change. It's just that the curtain was pulled back a little, and his three buddies got a glimpse of his true identity. And it's kind of like, you remember the movie The Wizard of Oz? And there's the the, the great Oz. He's this big face that blows smoke and fire and speaks with a thundering voice. But you get to the end of the movie. The great Oz is doing his thing. And Dorothy's little dog, Toto, runs over to a curtain and pulls back the curtain. And behind the curtain, there's just this old con man who's working the levers. He's the real Oz behind the great Oz. With Jesus, it's just the opposite. Okay, you look at him, first century, he's a peasant rabbi from Galilee. No big deal. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the curtain is pulled back and it's, oh my goodness, this is awesome. You know, Mark Mark says that his clothes were dazzling. The word dazzling here is a word used in other Greek literature of the day to speak of flashes of lightning, flashes of lightning. The text also says there were two men with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses and Elijah, two Old Testament characters, had reputations as deliverers. Moses had delivered God's people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt back in 1400 B.C. Elijah arrives on the scene later. He delivers God's people at a time of moral and spiritual decadence. He he delivers them. From the powers of the the Baal cult, the worship of the false god Baal. If you remember the story, if we had time, I'd love to tell it. You know, he goes toe to toe with 450 prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel, and at the end of the confrontation, fire falls from heaven. So these, these two Old Testament deliverers are here talking with Jesus, who's about to deliver people from sin's power and sin's penalty by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Two deliverers talking with the deliverer. Mark tells us that Jesus' friends were so terrified that Peter, Mr. Motormouth, he just started babbling. He offered to build three shelters for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Now, some Bible scholars say this may not have been simply crazy talk from a guy who had probably just wet himself. Okay, Peter was terrified. But it may be related to the fact this I'll build you a shelter to the fact that there were Old Testament prophecies that said that one day God would make his dwelling among men. God would come and live on earth. And Peter's looking at Jesus and he's saying, this looks an awful lot like the fulfillment of that prophecy. Like God has just showed up. God, can I build you a shelter? Can I build you a place to dwell? And then verse 7 says, a cloud appeared and covered them. Another sign of the presence of God. See, in the Old Testament, the cloud of God's glory, a cloud called the Shekinah, occasionally announced God's presence. When Moses was at the top of Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments from God, the Shekinah descended on the top of the mountain and and totally enveloped Moses. Okay, later on when Solomon builds a temple for the glory of God, the Shekinah descends on the temple, so fills the temple that not even the priests can enter until the Shekinah lifts the glory of God. And so when Jesus' disciples are suddenly smothered in this cloud on the slope of Mount Hermon, they know they're in the glorious presence of God. And just to remove any doubt from their minds, God speaks. And what God says about Jesus is simply amazing. He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, friends, when God says, this is my son, you need to understand that we're talking sonship in a different way than than when you and I say we could become children, sons and daughters of God, by putting our faith in Christ. That's true. You know, John 1, verse 12 says, As many as receive Jesus to those who believe on his name, he gives the right to become children of God. So when you surrender to Jesus, you're adopted into God's family. You're an adopted child. But Jesus is not an adopted child. Jesus is God's son by nature. Jesus is God's son by his very godness. Jesus is God the son. The glorious Son of God. The glorious Son of God. Now there's a, a lot more that we could observe in this transfiguration section of today's passage. We don't have the time, so let me say just a quick word uh, about a message that you could get out of this text and then an application to your life. Okay, lots of observations. Pick any one. Make a message out of it. So if I'm making a message out of this, I'll tell you, I'm so struck by this glorious Son of God, when you encounter God, what do you do? You worship. So my, my message would be, if I'm writing in my Bible-savvy journal, it, it, it could be, Jesus Christ is the glorious Son of God who deserves worship. Who deserves worship? That's how you respond to a glorious God, you worship. And then if I'm bringing this home to an application, I might write something like this in my Bible-savvy jur- journal. He deserves worship. So what does that mean? What do I do I'm going to carve out time every single weekend. I'm not going to miss. I'm going to be with God's people worshiping Jesus. Or when I join in the singing at church on the weekend, I'm going to sing from my heart like I mean it. Or or my application may be, I'm going to start each day with just a two-minute prayer of praise to Jesus using one or two of his attributes that I pick up in my Bible reading about who he is, tell him how wonderful he is. See, you go anywhere with this by way of application. Third aspect of who Jesus is. He's the commanding leader. The commanding leader. Let's go back and pick up the section that we skipped over. Verse 34 of chapter 8. Then Jesus called a crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see That the kingdom of God has come with power. Okay, we're making observations. The O of coma. One of the first things I note is that Jesus' audience has changed. Okay, in the previous section, he's been talking exclusively to his disciples. Who's he talking to now? Look at the opening verse I just read to you. Who's he talking to? Call it out. The crowd. He's called the crowd to himself. This is important because he's about to give just this incredible challenge but I want you to know the challenge is not given to the elite group, the insiders. This is not a challenge for super gung-ho Christ followers. This is a challenge given to everybody. If you're here today and you want a relationship with Jesus, this is what he says to you. Okay, and the challenge is unbelievable. The latter part of verse 34, he says, If you, if you want a relationship with me, then deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now I got to tell you, in our contemporary ears, take up your cross doesn't sound that dramatic. In first-century ears, oh my goodness! See, today you hear cross and you think you think of a piece of jewelry that you put on a you know on a, a necklace or a choker, or you think of a, a decoration that a church puts up on the side of its building, or or or, or you think of a tattoo that you you ink onto your arm. In the first century, you know what they thought of when when they heard cross? They thought death. It was a symbol of torture and execution that the Romans had invented for the worst criminals. Primarily for insurrectionists. If you were going to rebel against Rome, you were going to die on a cross. A dude named Spartacus in 71 BC, ever heard of him? Made a movie about him. Okay, Spartacus led a revolt against Rome. Spartacus and 6,000 of his fellow, uh, fellow rebels were nailed to crosses, and the crosses were prominently displayed so everybody could see these guys die along the road that, that, that went in and out of, of Rome. Okay, That's the cross. And Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. So if you were seen carrying a crossbar in the ancient world, everybody knew you were on your way to the place of execution. You were going to die. When Jesus tells us that those who want a relationship with him must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him, he's asking us to die. You say, die? Yeah, die. Die to self. Self no longer decides what's important to me, what my priorities are. Jesus does. Self no longer sets my moral standards. Jesus does. Self no longer determines how I spend my time and my money. Jesus does. Self no longer monopolizes my conversations. Jesus does. I'm under new management. Now, please, please don't misunderstand here. When, when you die to self, it, it doesn't mean you stop being you. You know, just the opposite. Okay, Jesus made me who I am. Jesus doesn't want me to die to my temperament and my gifts and abilities and, 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 and uh, you know, the special interests that he's given me. He's going to make me more me than I've ever been before. But the deal is, I've given up on building my kingdom, and I'm now all about building Jesus' kingdom. You get it? That's what it means to die to self. The grammar of verse 34 is very interesting here. When Jesus tells us to deny ourselves and take up our cross, those two imperatives, deny, take up, uh, they're in a tense A verb tense that indicates one-time action. So in the Greek language, you could do this. If you want to say something occurs once, once and for all, this is the verb tense you use. So you deny yourself and take up your cross. It's a one-time surrender. It's a conscious, deliberate decision. If you've never made that decision, you know that's when, when I encourage you, every time I speak to you, make it today, make it today, surrender to Christ. But then the next imperative, and follow me, Jesus uses a different verb tense. It's a verb tense that indicates continuous action. This is something you you now do day after day after day, hour after hour after hour, in every decision, big decisions, little decisions. You choose to obey Christ. You choose to do what Jesus would want you to do, what Jesus reveals in in his word you should do. So make a decisive decision. Decision to surrender to Christ and then every day walk in obedience to Him. Now, why would someone do this? This is a dramatic move on our part. Well, Jesus gives us several reasons in the next few verses, verses thirty-five to, to thirty-eight. Several reasons why this is a good idea to do. And, and note, I said several reasons, as in this is a repeating idea. This is the R in treats, a repeating. He says. The same thing several different ways. Why should you surrender your life to Jesus and follow him every day? Reason number one, verse 35, he says, because if you try to save your life, if you try to protect your little, your little fiefdom, your kingdom, your, your throne, your self-rule, go, go ahead, you stay in charge. Jesus says you try to save yourself, you'll lose your life. You'll lose it in this life, your sense of purpose in this life, and you'll lose life eternal. Second reason he gives to surrender to Jesus and live for him, verses 36 and 37, he says, if you refuse to do this, it may seem like you gain the world. Hey, I'm going I'm to do what I want to do. It, go ahead. If you get everything your heart desires, you gain the world. Every job, every possession, everything goes your way you'll forfeit your soul. Go ahead, gain the world, but you'll forfeit your soul. And then finally, maybe the strongest reason of all, verse 38, Jesus says, if you refuse to acknowledge me as your leader in this world, then I'm going to listen, I'm going to refuse to acknowledge you before the heavenly Father on the day of judgment. That is not something you want to hear. From the lips of Jesus, when you stand before Almighty God, you don't want to, know, want to hear, I don't know this person. These are good reasons to surrender to Jesus once and for all and to follow Jesus day by day by learning his word and walking in obedience to it. So how do we bring this home to an application? Okay, the, the message is Jesus is a commanding leader who ought to be followed, The application is, how do I do it? And we've given you some hints at application at the bottom of the sermon notes for today. Now, I've told you that Clayton and I have started a new habit. At the end of our sermon notes every week, we're going to give you three or four discussion questions. You could use them with your family. You could use them over a cup of coffee with friends. You could use them as an icebreaker if you're a community group in your group this week. and Just a way to reflect back on what you learned from the sermon the previous weekend. Questions three and four deal with the application of this third point about Jesus being a commanding leader. Question three, in what area of your life are you most tempted to resist Jesus' leadership? You want to apply what you learned here? Okay, Jesus says, follow me. In what area of your life are you not following him? Does it have to do with relationships, have to do with money, have to do with your devotion to him, have to do with whether you're bold for him or not? Okay, good question to answer. Question four, have you ever declared your allegiance to Jesus? He said, if you'll acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge you. You don't acknowledge me, I won't acknowledge you. Have you ever declared your allegiance to Jesus by getting baptized? If not, what's keeping you from doing so at the next baptism services on November 12 and 13? Don't be one of those who says, well, you know, I don't want to get wet. Don't want to be embarrassed in front of a bunch of people. I've been a Christ follower for a long time and never did this, so now it's kind of embarrassing to do the thing I should have done. Do it. Acknowledge Jesus. Go public. Now, in just just a moment, we're going to close in a song. We're going to collect our gifts and our offerings, one of the ways that you follow Jesus as your leader. You bring him your tithes and offerings. And as we do that, we're going to sing a song. Now, at the end of the song, our campus pastors... They're going to close in prayer. After they close in prayer, let me say, if you've never surrendered to Christ, this is a great day to do it. And as a sign of your decision to surrender to him, I encourage you to pick up a Next Steps packet. They're available. At the table behind your zone. So, across four campuses, wherever you're seated right now, at the back of your, your zone, your section, there's a table and it has Next Steps packets on it. Pick one of those up. It'll get you started in a relationship with Jesus. Open it up, read the information we've given you. You want to surrender to the Messiah who died on the cross to pay for your sins, to ransom you from sin's power and sin's penalty. Surrender to him today. Let's sing.